If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Want to start a Hamilton Today dance party? That's the way to do it. Looking through the glass into the operator's studio, we have got the two wheels in a full-on dance-off this afternoon. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Hamilton Today. You can keep dancing if you want. That's okay. Hard not to dance. There you go. Hard not to dance when that song's playing. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson. Scott Thompson is off today because he heard this song was going to be playing and decided he had to be home to dance freely. Uh, (laughs) Welcome to the show. Glad you are along. Hope you enjoyed your first little hint of winter this morning. Yeah, you woke up this morning, depending on where you were, there was a hint of winter, a taste. Our poll question today was was talking about that. If you go to 900CHML on Twitter, now that we have received our first snowfall, have you put your winter tires on your vehicle? Yes or no? Kind of hope you did, especially, and we mentioned this yesterday, especially if you're planning to go to Buffalo this weekend. I know we mentioned this yesterday, but the news just keeps getting better and better for our friends south of the border in upstate New York. The Buffalo Bills are hosting the Cleveland Browns this Sunday at 1 o'clock in an NFL game at Highmark Stadium, formerly Ralph Wilson Stadium in Orchard Park. Let me, let me read you a line from the Weather Network. The perfect setup is developing over Lake Erie to manifest a multi-day squall event which will deliver more than 100 centimeters of snow, possibly as much as 150 centimeters. That is over five feet of snow to the hardest hit areas. Uh Uh-huh. Unfortunately, now stay with me, unfortunately for football fans, the bullseye for the snow is looking to be centered over Highmark Stadium in Orchard Park, New York. (laughs) The stadium is ground zero for five feet of snow. I mean, I don't even know if they're going to be able to play the game, but I really, really want to see that. I really want to see two teams trying to play in snow that's above their knees. You ever, you ever, when you were a kid and you went out on the schoolyard for break, when they used to let you take breaks in snowy days and they weren't worried about lawsuits and stuff, uh, when you used to go out and tried to play and run around in knee-high snow, do you remember what that was like? I mean, I know that NFL players are world-class athletes, but th- that would be hilarious. Well, I mean, what else is the point of the uh, oh, keep raising your knees, keep raising your knees exercise they do? That, right? That, that was training for this. That was training for this. So, yeah, if you, are, uh, if you are a fan, first of all, if you have tickets, my son bought me Buffalo Bills tickets this year, went to the, the opening game. Beautiful, beautiful night. Monday Night Football against Tennessee Titans. He took me as a gift for Father's Day and my birthday. Wonderful night. Had a magnificent time. Weather was great. Everything was fantastic. But we had looked at a number of other games to go to including this one. Oh, I am so thankful we did not choose this one. We had, it was gorgeous the night we went. I can't even fathom what we'd be thinking right now if we were thinking we have to drive down to Buffalo in five feet of snow because the tickets are not cheap if you have not looked. Mm. If you do have tickets, leave early. As in two days early, perhaps. Now, leave now for Sunday. Just park in the parking lot, take some warm clothes and a hibachi and your food, and you know, just call it an extendo tailgate. That's okay. 
Let me tell you what's coming up on the show today. We have a lot of things to get to today, as we always do. We're going to be chatting about the tiny house program. It looks like finally in the city of Hamilton, a spot has been found where this can be done. A test program for the tiny houses may be able to get started. A lot of people like the idea. The problem has been, where can we put them? Well, if we can now put them somewhere, maybe we can see how these work. Toronto Blue Jays made a big trade today that if you base anything at all on social media is a wildly unpopular trade. I mean, the fans want the general manager, Ross Atkins, not just run out of town, but run out of town right into the heart of Buffalo in the middle of a snowstorm. I mean, they. this is, whether it makes sense or not, we'll find out, but it is, they are outraged at this trade. We'll, we'll see why this was done. Uh, we're going to be chatting about the immigration levels that the country that the federal liberals have promised. Uh, polls are out about what people think about this. It's a really tricky one because I think most people like the idea of immigration into the country to some degree. It's a question of how much and are you racist if you have any concerns about immigration whatsoever? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that one. Um, uh, the new council is sworn in today. We'll get into that one. Uh, we're going to be chatting about the QP looming strike again, again. Uh huh. And China and Canada, um, ongoing issues with China and Canada. So many things, so many things to get to today. I already gave you the Twitter poll if you want to go onto Twitter. Now that we've received our first snowfall, have you put winter tires on your vehicle? Uh, go to Twitter, go to 900CHML, uh, cast your vote there. Yesterday, I told you at the end of yesterday's show, the question was, the Ontario Liberals are calling for universal masking in schools and on transit. Do you support that idea? Over 13,500 votes in. Yes, I support that idea, but only for transit, 1%. Yes, but only for schools, 1% only support that idea. Yes, I support masking for schools and transit, 6%. No, I don't support universal masking for schools or transit, 92% not in favor. Hmm. We have been talking, we, I mean, people in the city of Hamilton have been talking about tiny homes for... Boy, you lose track a year, over a year now, I guess, seriously talking about it. I mean, it's been in the discussion before that. But the idea being as part of a beginning of a solution to homeless issues, we build or someone builds some tiny, tiny homes, basically a little mini cabin that people can live in and be off the street. The problem while there's been a lot of people who have agreed with the concept, the problem has been finding somewhere to put these. Whether it's because people don't necessarily want them in their neighborhood or there's not land or whatever else. Well, it appears that there is now a place to put these, which means that this project may get started at least in some small way to see how it works. Uh, Tom Cooper is director of Hamilton's Roundtable on Poverty and a board member of the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters. He joins us now. Tom, how are you today? Hey, Scott. Good to talk to you. So, yeah, good to talk to you. And this has been something, it's an interesting thing because homelessness, you know, we don't always agree on a whole lot of things with this. So everyone across the city, most people, though, that I've talked to have been okay and even good with the idea of tiny homes. It's just been a question of where to put them. Has that that been your sense that most people are on board with the concept? We just haven't found a home. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think all Hamiltonians can agree uh, that we are facing a crisis of homelessness on our streets. Uh, More and more people who have never been without a house before are are finding themselves in in situations of homelessness. So we um, 
we saw this idea emerging in, in other communities across Canada, particularly in Kitchener, and, and we thought we'd try it here. And it, it, there seems to be a lot of support. Why has it been so difficult to find a place, though? Because, again, I, I've lost track of the time. I've said a year. It's probably more than that. But it, it's been a long time looking for something. Yeah, you're right, Scott. And it's it's been challenging to find the right spot. And we had high hopes earlier this year that we would be able to use the field beside Sir John A. Macdonald High School. Um, but there were a lot of problems uh, with that location. Um, and, and, and so we've been looking for other spots. And, and just recently, uh, a uh, an architect who owns a parking lot in the Barton and Sherman Street area came forward and, and offered us the use of that property. It's going to be developed into uh, into a new building in in a year or two uh, time. But uh, uh, while while some of those uh, details are being worked out, he he offered us the use of the land. So we have it as uh, as a temporary site. It's not a huge parking lot, uh, but it will allow us to set up uh, up to uh, ten tiny cabins and a couple of trailers. One for washroom and shower facilities. Another for kitchen facility. And, and so we are hoping we'll be able to move forward now. This is um, for people who may, they may or may not know. This is about halfway, if I've got this right, about halfway between Tim Hortons Field and Hamilton General on Barton Street, right? Sort of in that yeah, area? Yeah, it's about there. Yeah. yeah and they're it's not and, too far from uh, the corner of Sherman and Barton. And, you know, it's 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 an area certainly where, the, where there are neighborhoods. And we want to be very cognizant of, of being good neighbors uh, to the folks who are living there. And, and so we're going to have a couple of community meetings tomorrow at Tim Horton's Field in, in the caretaker lounge on the, on the first level. Uh, just to talk about some of our plans here from them uh, to, to hear if they have any concerns, uh, talk a little bit about uh, safety and security and that sort of thing. Yeah. And again, just for people trying to picture it, there is a sign, a vertical sign on Barton Street it says Barton Village. That's where the parking lot is right there. So it is a very small parking lot. Is this, I mean, I, ultimately, I think you would probably love to have 50 or 60 or 70 of these tiny homes built. But right now, in a way to convince people, I mean, this seems like it's a good size for a test run that you could then either see if this works or see if this doesn't work here. 10 seems like an idea that it's not so onerous. But you know what? If, if this is great, then people are going to say, look, it worked really well. And if it's not great, people are going to say, hey, this didn't work so well. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, Scott. And we recognize that it's only a drop in the bucket. There are, you know, maybe up to 2000 people, uh, certainly at least 1500 people who are, who are on the streets uh, right now without a home. And not all of those individuals uh, can access the shelter system for various reasons. Some don't feel it's safe. Uh, some are concerned about their health. Other people uh, are, are in couples. Uh, they're in couples living together on the streets and, and they'd have to, you know, go in separate uh, separate locations and, and they don't want to do that. Other people have pets. Um, you know, it's their, their only companion left after, you know, what may be a huge trauma in their life of, of losing their home. So, you know, these are all opportunities that we're looking to uh, provide, you know, some shelter for people. We don't consider it, you know, permanent housing by any means. It, it's really a transitional space where people can get stabilized, they can get warm, stay healthy, certainly get off the street uh, during the winter. And, and then we'll try to find more permanent forms of, of housing, supportive housing for them, you know, as as those places get built. And, 
you know, we're, we're, we're looking at partnering with lots of great uh, community organizations, including Indwell, who's doing fantastic work in Hamilton on, on, on getting people housed. So we're, we're hoping this is just another option for people uh, that, that will prevent, you know, the dangers of life on the street. Tom, one of the things that has often been said when people are talking about homelessness is that we have to have something that is near all the social services. I'm not sure this is near many of the social services. Does that pose a problem? Well, there are there are some uh, services, but we're also going to plan some wraparound services at the site as well. So whether it's medical uh, or skills training, um, we're going to ensure that the people who are living at the site have have those opportunities to get to get those kind of supports. Um, I, I don't know if you'll recall, Scott, but we uh, we actually talked to uh, a good number of people who were experiencing homelessness and asked where they sort of if we we're going to set up a tiny cabin community where they thought and they wanted to be away from that they wanted to not be right away from downtown um and and that kind of shocked me uh at the time if you'll recall and but you know i think this is a this is a good place uh for a small community again it's it's we're, we're not talking about a huge footprint uh, on on the uh, on the community, but uh, I think it's enough to to show that this model uh, is viable. And, Tom, I, and- Tom, I got to jump in because I just have about fifteen seconds. But really quickly, one of the concerns that neighbors have expressed, and I'm sure you've heard this, is you know we we want to be supportive, but we also don't want to bring a lot of problems into our neighborhood. Are there rules for the people who will be in the tiny homes? Will there be rules of sobriety or rules of something? Will there be things to protect the neighbors? Yeah, there's going to be uh, there's going to be an agreement signed uh, by the uh, by the tiny cabin residents. So uh, we're going to talk to both the uh, the potential uh, community residents and and others about what that uh, looks like. But we're going to ensure that uh, both the people staying at the site are are have have safety. Uh, as, w- as well as the local neighborhood. And that's one of the reasons we want to talk to the neighbors tomorrow at Tim Hortons Field. That is Tom Cooper. He's the director of Hamilton's Roundtable on Poverty, and he's a board member on the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters. Uh, Tom, always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Thanks, Scott. Fans are not particularly happy today, fans of the Blue Jays. Whether they have right to be upset or not, well, we'll get to that in just a second. But the Blue Jays made a deal today, uh, sending T. Oscar Hernandez, Silver Slugger outfielder, to Seattle for reliever Eric Swanson and a prospect, Adam Mako, or Mako. I think it's Mako. My next guest, as I say, he'll be able to tell us. But uh, people, um, as I say, many people on social media, which is not always the best place to go to get in-depth analysis. Analysis, nonetheless, but nonetheless, people a little miffed saying we gave up a really good outfielder for a reliever who. Nah, nah. Let me bring in Mike Wilner. He is a man who's not afraid to fly in the face of convention, columnist with the Toronto Star and podcaster, and as I say, a guy who occasionally does not always agree with the voice of the fans. <laughs> Mike, how are you today? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? I am good. Well, are the fans right in their frustration with this move, or are there very good reasons for this, and they will relent in another six months and say, this was brilliant? I don't know if it has to be one or the other, but I would say that flying in the face of convention doesn't mean disagreeing with random fans on Twitter. But, um, you know, look, this is they're entitled to be people who are upset are entitled to be upset. Teoscar Hernandez was a favorite of, of a lot of people. Um, he won a silver slugger in 2020 and 2021. Um, but 
he was going to be a free agent after this year. The Blue Jays are too right-handed, uh, and there wasn't just wasn't room to add uh, a left-handed bat without moving somebody out. And you're not going to move Guerrero or Bichette or Matt Chapman or George Springer. Uh, and it really did leave uh, Guriel or Hernandez both of whom are going to be free agents after next season, one of whom was absolutely going to be traded uh, this season. So in moving Teoscar Hernandez, you bring in Eric Swanson, uh, who as a reliever had an ERA of 168 last year in 57 appearances and um, you know has a killer splitter, was very good against both left-handed hitters and right-handed hitters, and is... Still under control for another three years. He, he, uh, the league hit 202 against him. So this is a guy coming off a phenomenal year out of the bullpen. Uh, exactly the sort of thing that the Blue Jays need. Um, 70 strikeouts in 53 and two thirds innings. They get this prospect, Mako, Adam Mako, who, uh, is Canadian, which is a nice plus, but also struck out 60 and 39 innings last year uh, and projects potentially as a, a dominant uh, back-end reliever if he can't make it as a starter. So, yeah, it's not an overwhelming return for Tay Oscar, I don't think, when you think of you know what he has done in the past. But when you think about it as it's for one year of Tay Oscar Hernandez, uh, and $12 million in uh, salary clearance, uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty good return. And then, you know, you think of Teoscar, and as much as a lot of people love him, uh, with good reason, he's a guy who uh, is not a good defensive outfielder. Uh, he's a guy who tends to have some mental lapses on the field and on the bases. And he's a guy who, as a hitter, tends to disappear for a couple of months every season. Um, so, you know, this is it's, it's not a bad return for, again, one year of Teoscar Hernandez. I think Jay's fans, and I, probably fans in every market, honestly, um, it's hard to get too excited about middle relievers. It's, the, it's probably the least sexy thing to bring in, and I know bullpens are more and more important, and the Jays certainly needed bullpen help. There's no question about that. It, it just, it's as I say, it's, it's the return on its face to most people, I think, seems underwhelming. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, it absolutely does, because, you know, like you said, he's not a closer, Swanson, um, and Mako is in A-ball, so you're not really seeing um, immediate, okay, this guy's going to step in and take Teoscar Hernandez's place in the lineup. So I, I totally get that. But again, you're trading one year of a guy who you needed you needed that spot, right? You needed, you needed somewhere where you can plug in a good left-handed hitter who can maybe even play a strong defensive center field so that George Springer can move over to right field. Like this is, and, and it's a thing that a lot of, you know, you're, you're, you're taking the voice of the fan here. A lot of fans see a move and think, okay, that's the move. Um, when really it's just one piece of what are going to be several moves over the course mm. of the next three months. 
One of the other things that I've, I've seen a lot, and again, I, I uh, like you, uh, I take what I find on social media with many, many grains of salt. Nonetheless, it's an interesting discussion place to start from. One of the other comments that I've seen a lot, and this kind of makes some sense, is we heard all last year, the thing the Jays were missing in their bullpen were those power arms that you saw with Houston or some of the other teams. And Swanson is, I mean, he gets a lot of swings and misses, and that splitter, as you say, is really good, but he's not a traditional power arm. It seems the Jays just don't. This might have been the chance to try and find one of those. They didn't do that. Yeah, but I don't think you can get, like, an Andres Munoz, let's say, from Seattle who throws 103, um, or, you know, another guy who, who... has had success in the major leagues who can throw the ball through a brick wall for one year of Teoscar Hernandez, especially coming off, you know, a year that where he wasn't terrific. I mean, he came on awful strong at the end, but he was ineffective for a lot of the season. So I, I just don't think you can get that for, again, one year of Teoscar Hernandez. Hmm. And so you look at the next thing and you look at that Eric Swanson splitter that the league hit 129 against last year and all those strikeouts um yeah he only throws about 94 but again opponents hit just 185 against this fastball that is mike wilner uh you can see him in the toronto star you can follow his podcast mike plug the podcast yeah deep left field it's uh it's a lovely baseball podcast and it comes your way every thursday uh, every week even in the off season, tomorrow's episode will have reaction, obviously, to this Teoscar Hernandez trade. Ross Stripling is coming back. He was on every week uh, during the season, and he's going to be my guest tonight. And also Spencer Horwitz, who is a potential left-handed bat to help the Blue Jays out. He was just added to the 40-man roster yesterday and, and was a star in the Arizona Fall League last year. Very exciting young player is going to be on the show with me tonight. Mike Wilner, thanks as always. Appreciate you doing this. Thanks for having me. That is, uh, it, it's, I mean, it's an interesting position the Jays are in. The funniest thing I saw today was, uh, again, on social media, grains of salt, I grant you. Funniest thing was, hey, they got rid of Teoscar Hernandez. Now sign Aaron Judge. Uh, yeah, that's not working. We're not, we're not going from getting rid of $14 million in salary to adding 40 in one player. Anyway, nice thought. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Leger just did a poll. Leger, along with the Association of Canadian Studies, just did a poll. And I want to bring in Andrew Enns, who's the executive uh, VP at Leger's Winnipeg office. Andrew, thanks for doing this today. Hi, thanks for having me on, Scott. I hope things are well with you. Things are great. Uh, when I say it's tricky, this is what I mean by this, I, I, and I thank you for doing this poll, because if you ask people about this, it's awkward to answer this question, because if people express concerns about immigration, I think they have concerns people are going to say, oh, well, you're a racist, you're a xenophobe then. But there are things that I think even reasonable and level-headed and non-racist people may have concerns about in this area. Well, I... I think you're. I think you're right on all accounts on that. I think you're. 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 You're certainly. Um, 
you know, um, you know, on top of the idea that people are sometimes a little reluctant to, to, um, to sometimes, uh, you know, fully engage in a question like this, because for your, exactly what you said, that they don't want to come across as being, uh, uh, you know, somehow they don't like immigrants or, or, uh, or, or being, uh, being a racist or, or a bigot of some sort, but, and but at the same time, I think uh, you know. In our poll, found I mean, forty nine percent of people uh, who you know answered our poll. And it was a large poll across the country. Forty nine percent said that, that they actually feel it is going to be too many uh, too many immigrants. And to the to the second part of your your questions, you know, Scott is you're right that that certainly you know people who you wouldn't typically you know uh, you know would think would 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 respond this way. And I and I look at we we had some political questions in here in terms of kind of we identified political uh, you know our respondents by who which parties they'd vote for, and the parties that you would typically think is being much more pro-immigration actually also expressed concern about the number of immigrants in a fairly significant way. And I'm thinking here of NDP voters federally, over a third of them, 36% of NDP voters currently in the in the country felt that there were too many immigrants maybe being contemplating uh, being uh, allowed into, into Canada. So I think it gets at that point that it's a much broader concern than uh, than just, uh, you know, maybe the, the xenophobic, uh, you know, roots that uh, we sometimes knee-jerk react to. Well, and the timing of this announcement and then your poll, but it, this is what makes it so difficult because we're in the middle of hearing about a health care system that is overwhelmed. And so yeah. people might say, well, then if we add hundreds of thousands more people, what does that do? Or we're hearing about the lack of housing. We've got housing crises in cities all over the country. Well, where do they go? And social services. And again, I, I, I understand that for some people it will feel very awkward. And some people will even accuse anybody who raises these things of being racist. I don't doubt that for a second. But these are real issues that I think people are very aware of these days. Well, for sure. And, and you know, our poll found uh, exactly what you said, that, uh, you know, over three quarters, about three quarters of our respondents are concerned about the stress that these um, that these new arrivals um, will, will place on the system. And so I think I think it is legitimate. And I think it's it's definitely a challenge for our policymakers. I'll put another, though, sort of a confounding situation, Scott, is that you could go to any chambers of commerce or any healthcare HR administrator and ask them, what's the number one challenge you face in your industry or your sector? And they'll say, we can't find labor. We need people to work. And they'll point to the fact that part of the problem that they're having in terms of hiring uh, hiring people to fill positions is the is the the slowdown in immigration that was a result of COVID and the pandemic and it shut down our our borders for a period of time. So there's a real this is a, actually a really interesting policy conundrum in the sense that governments getting it from one constituency saying we need immigration like we need it yes. to to, yes. to to fuel our economy. 
on the flip side, you've got a, you've got a population generally that they want to see, they really want to see some real strong action by governments to say, okay, if you're going to do this, how are we going to support this? Not just new people, but the people we currently have, because it's you're not doing great right now. Well, and look, if you if you go back in time, and and this country was built uh, in a lot of ways in the modern era of this country on immigrants who came here with skills and came from the old country and brought their skills here and really built up this country. And I think that's the kind of thing that many people, if they could be convinced that that was the bulk of the people who were coming, I think they probably would be on board with it. I think the concern, whether it's legitimate or not, I think the concern is, are these people who are going to be coming and building, or are they going to be coming who can't survive in a country that costs so much to live right now because of where they're coming from, and what happens then? Right. Right. You know, and I, and I you know, and again, I think that uh, um, that really sort of, and I think of anything, sort of these polling numbers, and I'm sure there'll be other numbers to follow, uh, are, is perhaps a bit of a, uh, uh, you know, a wake-up call, not a wake-up call, that may be too harsh, but a bit of a, of a beacon for government um, to start to really uh, clarify the, you know, the nature of the immigration, start to really, you know, bring some attention to the fact that of, okay, half a million sounds like a lot of immigration, but, but, uh, but X percent, uh, you know, large percent of these are coming and sliding right into, uh, right into, um, you know, employment opportunities. I think it's important that government enlists the support of, of different organizations like chambers of commerce and different in- industry uh, sectors to, to start to really, um, you know, not, not just talk about the need for immigration, but but to showcase how immigration is actually how they're integrating into their businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's not going to be uh, easy because every nope. single country is looking for those same people. Every well, single country wants immigrants who are going to bring great talent to their country. Exactly. You know, exactly. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, to your point, it's, it's also hard for Canadians, I think, to sort of fully appreciate the economic side of it when almost on a nightly basis, if we watch the news, we're seeing kind of the, the, the less the, the really challenged part right. of immigration, which is the refugee situation and people fleeing from Northern Africa across the Mediterranean into, into Europe and the Europeans having a really hard time and some, some reactions aren't really positive and, and border on some of that xenophobic stuff that you talked about earlier. And I think, I think some of us in Canada start to worry, like, like, are is that what we're going to be getting? Because that, that does sound to me like it could be pretty stressful on some of our yeah, there's a social PR, supports. There's right? a PR part of this as well as a, a lot of other parts of this for the yep. government to be able to uh, to convince people. Uh, Eric Enns, Executive yes. VP at Leger's Winnipeg office. Really, Andrew, appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Uh, for sure, Scott. Really appreciate it and have a good rest, uh, rest of your day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. City Council in this city, speaking of Hamilton, City Council in this city, the new City Council is being sworn in this evening as of an hour and a half or so from now. We will have 16 new or returning local politicians in place to govern and direct this city for the next four years. Well, there is someone we would naturally turn to to talk about something like this. His name is John Best. He's president or he's publisher of the Bay Observer. He joins us now. John, how are you today? I'm great, Scott. Are you uh, are you gurgling with excitement at the prospect of a new council? 
Well, I'm I'm a little excited. Um, you know, I mean, I I've been covering or paying attention to this council for much longer than I'd care to admit, but it's been <laughs> decades, and uh, there has never been this much turnover. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how these new people make out. And, uh, you know, we have to hope that they're going to make some good decisions for us because uh, it's going to be an activist council. There's no question about that. Uh, you've got eight or nine people that are pretty much convinced that uh, that they can do a better job than either the people they defeated or or the people that are still left that are across the table from them. So let's give it a shot and see how it works. But. You know, it, it's happening at a at a time when um, they they've already had a preliminary meeting, and there's a six point nine, almost seven percent budget deficit, and and we get that every year, you know, and then they whittle it down, and it ends up being something like two percent, and away we go. This year feels a little different in terms of uh, being uh, the tools that they're going to have to to whittle that budget deficit down and. The typical way of doing it is to just not do uh, capital investment. And if you drive anywhere in the lower city, you can see what that looks like. So, you know, some challenges. And the other challenge is coming from Queen's Park because it looks like the uh, provincial government is largely taking planning right out of the hands of the local council. and, And that's one of the biggest jobs they have. John, you mentioned that that part that you said about how they they feel they can do better than those who were there or across the table. That's a really interesting point because I'm of the opinion that this particular council has put enormous expectations right on themselves because of that. This this move for change, this move to clear out the old guard, all that kind of stuff. This to me has put the spotlight directly on the new folks who have said, "I can do it better." I don't want to be overstating it, but they kind of have to do it better, don't they? They have to do it a lot better, and and it's you know they're they're heading into that task at a at a real transitional time. I mean, this was a this was a change election. It was going to be a change election if if not a single person uh, incumbent had been defeated with the the number of resignations and retirements. But yeah, they've they've built themselves as being smarter, brighter, and uh, morally superior. So let's have at it and see how it works. But uh, you know, at at the end of the day, the taxpayers need these people to make some good decisions for sure. Do you expect that it will be less of a circus then than the last council, if we want to use the word circus? And maybe that's being dismissive. I don't I don't know. But is this going to be less eventful? Maybe is another word than the last council. Or do you look at this and go, no, I think this could be actually more eventful. To be honest, I think it's going to be more eventful because uh, you're, you're, you've got a, a large number of people that don't have experience, even just at the rules of the of order and that sort of thing. That you can pick up on that fairly quickly. But uh, one thing about it, if people thought that maybe meetings would get shorter with the removal of two or three of the people that didn't come back, uh, my my gut feeling, based on what I'm seeing on social media, is that we're in for a lot of long meetings. I think we're in for a tsunami of virtue signaling. So I, I think we're in for, uh, you know, it's for for council watchers. It's I think it's going to be uh, a very interesting term. 
What does that What does that do if that happens? I mean, is that a is that something that you get the sense that everybody in town wants to see happen, or if that happens, do people around town just kind of then tune it out and go, "Well, I'm just you know just don't raise my taxes too much, and I'll just pay attention when we get my new bill." Well, I think there's going to be some curiosity about this council. So, uh, so I, w- I would expect to see, you know, the, the meetings have never been more accessible with uh, Zoom and uh, electronic coverage. And so uh, council in many ways is has never been more available to the public. I suspect there's going to be a lot of watching and uh, I'm certainly going to be watching because uh, as somebody that uh, pays a little bit of the bills around here, I'm very interested to see how they do. Well, I mean, we just had uh, last hour, we were talking with Tom Cooper about the tiny homes. And um, this is not directly related, but one of the things I, I know they're coming to council early on because the budget process starts very early. They're looking for some help from the city. I have an, uh, an idea that an awful lot of groups with the new councillors who are on there, we'll be thinking this may be an opportunity to be heard and to maybe get some money. I do wonder about that 6.9% tax increase. I don't expect it'll end up being 6.9%, but I kind of also don't think it'll be that 2% that we usually get. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like that. I, I listened carefully uh, to Mr. Zagarek when he laid it out. He actually sort of laid out the picture for the outgoing council, and uh, I think he repeated it basically uh, earlier this week when they or last week, I guess, when they were having their their orientation sessions. It sounds like a lot of the usual uh, sources of of money, short of increasing taxes, are are, are simply the doors are all closed. And uh, it, it, I think it, I think it's going to be a challenge. And then if you have uh, a bunch of people coming up with requests or renewed requests, um, renewed expectations, uh, they've been there before asking for money and they didn't get it. They think they will now with the new council. Somebody's going to go away unhappy. So it'll either be the people that are looking for money or it'll be uh, taxpayers in, in Hamilton, uh, you know, and, and, The homeowners that I always think about with that scenario are the ones that are on fixed incomes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, who who are already in some cases, if they're only getting the basic pensions, you know, they're they're ponying up 25 percent of their income in property taxes right now for some of these modest homes. And you jack that up even by a few hundred dollars, it, it could make a huge difference in their lives. It is uh, It is going to be the start of an interesting four years. It could be a very calm, very demure four years. I And I think John tend to think it may not no. be that at all. Uh, I can't see it, my friend. Uh, John Best, pre- uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. After last week learning that there was going to be a stand down in the tensions a little bit between CUPE and the government and the notwithstanding clause would be extracted or retracted or removed or whatever word you want to use, uh, I think there was some hope that maybe things might get sorted out and maybe we wouldn't have kids or anyone else affected. Well... Not so fast. Uh, CUPE has announced that they are now um, they're poised to walk off the job again in Ontario when they have rejected so far anyway all of the province's uh, offers to avoid a strike with the uh, with the education workers. I want to bring in Colin DeMello. He is Queens Park bureau chief for Global News. Joins us now. Colin, how are you today? 
Doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I can't. I mean, we listen, we love having you on here, but for this, I can't imagine there's anything parents of students want to hear less than you and I talking about another potential strike. Well, especially one so close to the strike that we just had. I mean, uh, you know, thousands of parents were uh, impacted and millions of children were impacted by the last two strikes that happened just a couple of weeks ago. And so, you know, to have another strike coming potentially in the same month, uh, it'll be left to see be seen whether parents are in favor of uh, what QP is doing versus whether they're going to back the government this time. I have always believed, and some may agree with me, some may disagree with me, I have always believed that in public union labor negotiations, public relations is maybe the biggest part of the whole thing, because you have to have the public on your side to win this. One side is going to have to give in, and usually it's the side that doesn't have the public's support. Do you have any sense at this point of who might be in that position? Last time, a week ago, the government did not have the public support with the notwithstanding clause. That was pretty clear. Do you think that changes or do you think they're in the same position? Well, I think it might change depending on, you know, how um, parents view this this current action and whether it is necessary or unnecessary. Keep in mind, QP, you know, they wanted the government to backtrack on Bill 28. And the government did that. On Monday, the government repealed Bill 28 in its entirety. And, and they introduced a law that made sure that Bill 28 was never a law in the first place. And so the two sides went back to the bargaining table and they've been hashing things out for a little while. And so some parents might kind of look at this and say, well, has there been enough time at the bargaining table in order to actually you know, necessitate another strike action? The bill was only repealed last Monday, or this uh, a couple of days yeah, ago. Yeah. And, you know, QP is already kind of indicating that they want to go on strike one week after the bill has been uh, repealed. And so I, I think that question will definitely come up so much so that even QP was getting those questions today. Is it premature to be taking this action? And they didn't feel that it was premature because they've been bargaining with the government for some, you know, 100 days now. The government, though, does say that this is, quote, unnecessary and unfair. Uh, so perhaps they're trying to, you know, channel a little bit of what parents might be feeling or they're trying to spin parents a little bit to also feel how the government might be feeling here, that this is a bit unfair uh, in the government's view. Well, one of the reasons why I think that I asked the question and I wonder is because it was very clear a week ago that the government was on the losing side of the public relations battle. Right now, though, when you're talking about 3.59% times three years, that's that's we're talking about a 10% wage increase. Now, I understand that these are some of the lower paid education workers, but I think there's an awful lot of people across the province and across the private sector who will look and say, at a time like this, 10% sounds pretty darn good to me. What's the problem? Well, and that is the big question that we've been having here, because for the last number of weeks, we thought that this was all down to wages, because QP had been talking about the fact that they wanted uh, $3.25 per individual per year uh, in terms of an hourly raise. And the government today said that they are offering a dollar an hour increase uh, per individual, which would mean, you know, a roughly 3.6% increase. And the union said today, listen, they, they found some middle ground when it came to wages and, and that the wage increase offer from the government was a big win for them. 
So that was the big question. Well, if this wasn't about wages, then what is this about? And QP is now saying, well, they wanted increased stability in terms of staffing. They want more early childhood educators, uh, educational assistants, more custodians, librarians and um, front staff in the office as well. You know, that wasn't initially what they had said was part and parcel of their offer. But now they're saying that the two are kind of non-negotiable wages plus increased staff. And I, I think it'll be left up to parents to decide whether you know they've changed the goalposts here or whether the goalposts were set in stone right from the very beginning. The government seems to be kind of blindsided by this. They're indicating that they've made concessions at the bargaining table and that it's QP that's kind of changing uh, the, the messaging in terms of what they want. But either way, the two sides now have five days before a strike takes place on November 21st. Colin, how much of this is actually to do with this? And how much of this negotiation, from the government's perspective in particular, is making sure they are not too generous because they've got teachers' contracts that are being renegotiated, thousands of teachers across the province. You're soon, if not already, going to have health care workers negotiating contracts. You've got all these other unions. I'm looking at this thinking they're probably thinking if we give too much here, if we give too much ground, we're setting ourselves up for a real big problem next up. Listen, there is an undercurrent for both sides. If you're looking at this from QP's perspective, they're trying to kind of undo what the government has done over the last number of years, where the government has kind of constricted education spending a little bit, has you know increased class size averages, maybe has has reduced the number of staff in the schools uh, j- just by you know perhaps underfunding schools itself. QP is using this as the way to kind of undo whatever cuts they saw in the education system, and so for them there is a larger goal here, uh, and it has nothing to do necessarily with these particular negotiations. And for the government, you're absolutely right. I mean, teachers' contracts often have this Me Too clause that what QP gets, they might get as well. So if the government is giving QP workers uh, three and a half, uh, 3.6% increase per year, well, teachers in this province might also be getting that. And, and there are a, a large number of educators in, in Ontario who make a six-figure salary. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's what the government is, is kind of thinking about here. So both sides are negotiating directly, but they definitely have an underlying motive here. The government might not want to give more to teachers. Uh, QP might want to be extracting more out of the government to undo whatever uh, you know education underfunding it may perceive the government had been doing over the last number of years. And that's what's kind of led to this larger fight. And unfortunately, as always, the people who are in the middle are 2 million students in Ontario and their parents and families who have to potentially find childcare on Monday if QP goes on strike. Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Love having you on here. Thank you, Colin. Appreciate the time. My pleasure as always. That is uh, that is the reality, though, as Colin just says, that by Monday, the there could be another strike and kids could be home and we will be back into, I really believe, yes, a negotiation, yes, a labor stoppage, more a giant PR battle. Who can win the hearts and minds of Ontario voters and put themselves in the position where the pressure goes on the other side? And it's very clear. We saw polls. It was very clear that last week or a week or and a half ago, whatever it was, when the government was going to implement the notwithstanding clause, it was very clear that voters were on the side of CUPE workers. Very clear. The government lost that battle. 
question is, will the public still be on the side of QP workers who are now being offered 10% raise at a time when many people are looking at no raise or very little raise or have lost money during COVID? Will they be on board with, my kids are home because 10% increase isn't enough? Really? I think I think we may this may be a point when maybe the PR battle swings. However, I've been wrong on this before. We shall see. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Yesterday on the show here, we were talking about the G20 and about Canada's role and whether we have much of a role and about our involvement with China and the fact that there were stories that China was snubbing our Prime Minister Trudeau. Well, I don't know if that's better or worse than the story that is out today. Uh, The headline on a paper from England says, President Xi humiliates Trudeau as he's caught on camera tearing strips off Canadian PM that their conversation at G20 has been leaked to the papers. It's not appropriate. There is video of our prime minister looking, well, I don't want to put words in people's mouths about how he's looking, but standing there being chastised by the Chinese leader. Let me bring in Charles Burton. He is uh, He's the one who can maybe offer a word on how he interprets uh, this. He is senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute. Uh, thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Good to speak with you, Scott. When you saw this video, do you... See, here's the thing. When you, when you see Canada and China butting heads on one hand, you say, well, that's not probably good for us because we're small potatoes in this fight. On the other hand, you say, well, maybe it's good that we're ticking off the Chinese leader because uh, he should be ticked off. How, how do you interpret this? Well, I, you know, in addition to the body language, uh, you know, I'm, I, I was educated in China, so I could hear what uh, Mr. Xi was saying. And he was using language that he would never use to the American president. You know, he was really dressing down our prime minister for whom he evidently has a great deal of disdain and doesn't seem to give a damn about what Canada thinks about it. But essentially, he told him that, you know, they'd had this 10-minute chat the day before in a crowded room that uh, Trudeau should not have leaked that, uh, the information about it through his office. You know, it wasn't an official bilateral engagement. And that uh, Trudeau had mischaracterized what they had said to each other in the meeting. I, uh, I don't know whether that's true or not. It might well be. But then he said... You know, um, if you're not going to be sincere, then uh, there will be consequences. You know, uh, the 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 upshot will be difficult to say, which suggests to me that uh, China's planning some retaliation. It it really has a sort of, you know, mafia boss Hmm. um, intimidation kind of thing. You know, nice country you have there. Pity would be if something happened to it. (laughs) And I I didn't like the tone of it at all. It was very disturbing, frankly. Okay, so you're exactly right. We don't know exactly what the conversation was, but let's go to the point you just made a moment ago. I'm not a diplomat. Was the prime minister or whoever was there with the prime minister, because it may not have been him, was Canada in the wrong to leak this? Should this, whether regardless of what was said, should this have been something that remained between the two under those circumstances? Yeah, I think that, you know, a, a short paragraph saying that they had exchanged um, mutual concerns and uh, and uh, promised to meet sometime soon would have been good. <coughs> I mean, you know, they 
You do have these readouts of official meetings. There's quite a big one uh, with the prime minister's recent meeting with the president of Poland. That's perfectly legitimate. But this was just a, a hallway conversation. And so I, I think that uh, it would have been better if, if uh, Mr. Trudeau hadn't done that. I think there has been an assumption by our government that they can you know, virtue signal, as it's sometimes put, or sort of talk a hard line on China. Uh, but they, we don't actually do anything that would make any substantive difference to what China's doing, whether it's political interference or police stations in Canada or harassment of uh, persons in Canada, particularly Uyghurs and Tibetans. And so that China would just allow this to be said, knowing that it won't have any impact on Canada's actual behavior towards China. That Those days seem to be passed, and I, I think that formula is no longer viable. And it's pretty clear that the after um, the American Secretary of State Blinken was in Ottawa, and Ottawa promised to have a strategic dialogue on the Asia-Pacific with the United States and, and asked that we be admitted to the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity 14-country grouping that we had been excluded from, pretty pretty demanding, uh, pretty pretty revealing, that, um, you know, we really have to get it together and, and be more aggressive about uh, China's malign activities in Canada and China and internationally. And I think that Mr. Xi will be very unhappy to see that. And he wants to send a signal to other countries that if they're going to take a hard line on China, there are going to be consequences. Sure, and, and we're an easy one. And we're an easy one to take that line with because we're, uh, again, I don't want to use the phrase small potatoes, but we kind of are. Unfortunately, you know, the idea that Canada is a, is a respected major player in global affairs is something that uh, went out quite a few decades ago. And so, you know, they... I think we just have to recognize that we can't pretend that the Chinese are going to respect us because we're a, a respected nation in the world. We're not. And I think when Trudeau started to talk about political interference, that really got the Chinese hackles up because, you know, political interference is the way they try and, and defer um, foreign criticism of their human rights record and the genocide in the Uyghur region. So, you know, he didn't like that kind of uh, that kind of um, engagement being publicized to the Canadian press, even though, you know, it's 100 percent right that the Chinese have engaged in outrageous interference in our de democratic process by illegally supporting and funding uh, candidates for our parliament and placing agents of the Chinese state in their offices, at least according to the recent CSIS report uh, leaked by Global News. So. Well, and, and, and we only have a very short time, but this is part of the, the big question politically. Everything is political. I mean, the, the, you can't help but not be political. But I, I think there are Canadians who are going to look at this and say, I love the fact that the prime minister got under the Chinese leader's skin. We should be, as I said off the top, getting them angry about the stuff they're doing. Others are going to to look at it and say, how do you possibly make a political diplomatic blunder like this? How are we going to undo the mess right now? Uh, I mean, is there is this a guaranteed loss for the prime minister? I think there's those who will think that this was great, that the, that the move bothered the Chinese. Well, I mean, you know, maybe he didn't actually say those things to Mr. Xi, but neither here nor there. 
you know, as you say, the the symbol of it is um, we've made the Chinese mad. And that's different from the past where we've tried to keep the Chinese happy so that we can, you know, have our main issue, as, as I think uh, the government sees it, in the promotion of Canadian prosperity through through uh, trade and investment. And we know that if we, if we offend the Chinese by cracking down on their espionage and other activities in our country, that they will retaliate. Well, they're going to retaliate, you know, and, and this is over. And any illusion that we might have that if we treat them, you know, politely, that they will collaborate on things like climate change and the global health crisis and so on. I think that uh, that stuff is well past its uh, its uh, its due date. And we're going to have to see a new approach uh, where Canada gets much more into alliance with Australia, the UK and the US in recognizing what China is about and trying our best to bring China back into compliance with the international rules-based order and the norms of diplomacy and trade. Um, you know, at least we have to try. Uh, that is Charles Burton. He's a senior fellow with McDonnell Laurie Institute, and there are few, if any, better talking about China and Canada in this country. I uh, really appreciate the time, as always. Thank you. Great to speak with you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thank you to Will for his amazing job today. Did a terrific, terrific job with this and all the other stuff today. Thank you for that, Will. Uh, thank you to other Will. We just we hire people if they're named Will. If you if your name is William, there is a job at CHML for you somewhere. We'll find you a job. Uh, thank you to everybody for calling in. So many people calling and texting and reaching out. Penny Lane from Sam. Another one from Sam. Another one. From the Penny Lane. How could that not be on ba, the list? Ba, da, da. Like you just start humming and you're happy. You cannot. Yellow submarine. I thought might be one now that we say, now that we get into the Beatles. You get into the Beatles, we could be here all night. Nonetheless, thank you to everybody for participating today, everyone for listening. Go home. If you're home already, put on one of those great songs. Feel good this evening. Brighten your mood. We'll talk to you tomorrow. See ya. And boom goes the dynamite.